Hi everyone, welcome back to The Cast of Us. I am Kaz and my partner in crime is Will, and today we're going to jump straight back in and finish our discussion regarding Ellie's arc during the three days in Seattle. Last time we reached the theater back with Jesse after escaping the hellish Hillcrest neighborhood. So let's start. So yeah, so after the lake, they return to the theater together, and Dina is surprised to see Jesse there, but she's very happy about it. There's a little bit of an awkward moment. Yeah, it's not like a straight-up love triangle, but there's like some tension between the three of them. Oh yeah. And obviously, Dina has had something with Jesse, and has something currently with Ellie. Also has something currently with Jesse still, <laughs> since she's basically... Yeah, also has a <laughs> obligation that he doesn't know about. Yeah, that, which makes things and even Ellie more awkward. Ellie knows about it. Right. Ellie knows about it, but it's also, as of the last time they talked, it kind of drove a wedge between them. Ellie and Dina didn't leave off on the best foot, and now Dina's kind of happy to see Jesse. There's no, like, actual jealousy, I think, in the scene, but it's just kind of uncomfortable, and Ellie's just sort of like, I'll, I'll go be off on my own a bit while you two catch up. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like this whole kid situation. I think they did it fine, but there is this almost soap opera-ish effect to it. You mean like a teen high school thing? Yeah. I mean, they are still people of that age, despite the crazy circumstances, which is, has reared its head in other sequences, like Left Behind, from what I hear, and moments throughout where they try and remind you that these people still, they still got to have their coming of age, even if it falls in a really weird context. Yeah. I mean, it's another reminder how, because of the circumstances of the world, how fast they have to grow, grow up. up. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not properly growing up. You're just forcefully jumping certain steps. And right. there is a void there. there. There is something missing. An incomplete education. Yeah. Dina helps Jesse getting out of his clothes because, you know, he's... Ooh la la. He's very... Yeah. <laughs> masculine. <laughs> he's very, very hurt. Attractive. <laughs> oh... <laughs> Ellie leaves them in this sort of intimate moment, assuming, I guess, that maybe Dina will tell him yeah. she's pregnant. But I think she just says, oh, no, they're just a stomach bug or something like that. So we kind of understand that she's not ready to say anything just yet. And Ellie kind of, I'm not sure if it's, it's a moment of jealousy or just feeling a bit like a third wheel given the... The pregnancy and she kind of distanced herself from Dina in the previous conversation they had where there's a bit of tension over the news. So, yeah, she kind of goes off. Which transitions, I think, into the flashback where she's still in her train of thought and we just hear Tommy's voice in the background talking about something. I don't think we catch the beginning of it, so I don't think we understand really something about uh, maybe Maria or the relationship, but it's definitely inferred that Ellie was not listening. Sort of lost in her own. I think she's thinking about dating at the time. Might have been, you know, her previous relationship, the artist. Oh, cat. You know, just another continuation of your your high school drama, your high school soap here. Very possible. But yeah, we get a sniper sequence, which serving dual purposes again, as a lot of the better sequence in the game do, uh, which kind of introduces you to the scope that you may or may not have on your rifle, and how the game actually does integrate, you know, fall off over distance shots, and at the same time, it uh, makes this association between Tommy and the sniper rifle, which is just a little a little clue you can read into later. This is our, I guess, our one exposure to Tommy fighting 
Yeah, I think there's an emphasis on his rifle as well because he seems to have a sort of personality that is tied. To it also lets them lets them keep a lighter tone, even as you're sort of engaged in what's technically a combat sequence. The, the pair aren't in any danger, but you're still learning something for the combat scenario, so you can maintain that lighter tone and more relaxed environment while still engaging with the shooting part of the game. And they complete their little sniper exercise. They pick off all the, the zombies they see on patrol, and they head to meet up with Joel at a nice-looking lodge. I I think that's the same lodge as the one from the prologue. I mean, I might be wrong. I might be completely wrong. The architecture is similar, but I don't remember that lodge from the prologue having this big open view that we have out of the front of this one. The last shot after they barricade the door and decide to go where Abby's friends are, I think is the same oh. room as the one... Okay, you're saying... This is where they meet Abby, not where Abby's crew is. Yes, this is where they fight the zombies together with Abby. Yeah, that may be the case. I don't remember enough of the, the imagery. And we see them in such different climates. I don't think it matters anyway, just something I... Yeah, just a note. Yeah, we find Joel inside, and there is this awkwardness between Joel and Ellie that I don't necessarily understood where it came from, because last flashback we had was pretty... Positive. Oh, yeah was the whole birthday situation and i mean it ended on a strange note but largely a happy memory yeah we're only seeing snapshots of their relationship and we sort of have to place each moment chronologically and assume their reputation with one another is <laughs> just maintains at the same standing yeah from that moment until we get another piece of information it seems like ellie is just has the ending of the whole salt lake thing as we'll, we'll kind of discuss just stuck in her head indefinitely as long as joel doesn't acknowledge it that's just forever going to be there. I think because she's now starting to have a, a normal life, her maybe survivor's guilt is acting up. That possibility of there having been something. She can't enjoy a happy, normal life, quote-unquote happy, normal. I think she just can't get past that moment, can't enjoy anything until she has a certainty about that thing. And again, we discussed this before, she knows... Not knows knows, but she has very big doubts of what Joel said transpired there. Yeah, and this I guess this wedge is, has been pretty visible, uh, not just to the player, but to the other characters in the world. Because I, I think what the game tries to make clear here is that Tommy sort of arranged this little setup and wants the two to, to patrol further just so they can get some time together to hash out whatever it is that's causing the issue. They continue the patrol under the pretense of repairing a guitar that he's playing or whatever. I think this sequence that we're about to play through is also referred to in an earlier podcast that day that Ellie said was her record number of infected kills on patrol to Dina. I'm pretty sure this is that sequence because you, yeah. you fight a lot. I mean, any game, any sustained gameplay sequence where you fight infected, it's pretty easy to hit 12 zombies or more. The game usually needs more than that to make... You know, just a handful of combat encounters, so would not be hard to top it. And again, we've mentioned this before, but it's nice to see all these references play throughout, back and forth, timeline-wise, but it's also a little bit too neat. Right, yeah. One of the nice things about, I think, some of the moments in this game versus the first game is the sense that we get to see these characters on a on quote-unquote normal moments, that not everything has some relevance to the larger plot. It doesn't all have to be... You know, it's not like life is just filled with perfect moments that will inform the next or so on. Sometimes life just has moments that exist on their own or just inform yeah. you as a character and aren't pivotal moments. Whenever you get these longer timeline storylines and literally everything you get is some hyper-relevant 
piece of information. It, it just feels unnatural to me. And I know some people like the idea that we're cutting out the chaff, so to speak, that we're only seeing what is needed. But that's just, I, I don't know, it just doesn't read as naturalistic to me. It's very utilitarian. Right. And again, I don't think Last of Us was really at any point about the plot itself. It kind of informed the characterization of the characters, but those were always the main focus. There was always a specific purpose to every time we see them because it was such a long journey from you know basically across two-thirds of the country or three-fourths rather that there are vast sections of time and locations that it has to choose to admit uh, to fit it into a game so anytime we end up in a location and the game is choosing to show it to us be it bill's town or the encounter with the bandit overrun town where we meet the, the two kids we know it's going to be a significant moment in the relationship we're going to exactly. see a moment of growth or a turning point just something major happening and the nice thing about the this journey being sort of about a few days in seattle is we we can sort of see the less significant moments in that time you know not all that time has to be filled with something significant the game is condensing its focus so it can choose to put more downtime in there are some nice things we find out about it's endearing i guess uh, about joel he starts talking on his way to the small town in the look for strings for the guitar they're riding their horses and joel talks about the comic books ellie has been reading savage starlight this is a series that was present in the first series or first game too rather it's kind of a continuation of what we got to see in the the first flashback right where he it's clearly, uh, you know, like research the astronaut stuff and the dinosaurs yeah. specifically to impress Ellie. <laughs> and it's like, exactly. It's just another one of those, him trying to be a good dad, taking an interest in his daughter's interests. Exactly. I'm not sure at this point, I don't know if it's because of their tense relationship, if it's something he tries to compensate for, where he feels like she's slipping away, so he's just overcompensating by... He's got to put in a little bit more effort. Or if it's just something he genuinely, as a parent, wants to do, if that makes any sense. I buy that it's genuine. I think he, he keeps hoping Ellie's just going to let the... Salt Lake thing go. Yeah, and I, I think this whole flashback also gives a bit of insight in their relationship towards Ellie growing up. The first flashback was still pretty much the same relationship they used to have before. Well, it was like a very idealized version. Exactly. But Ellie is still like the kid we know in, in that flashback. And now she's grown a little bit. She says she wants to patrol and Joel agrees to it he knows she, she's more than capable so there's that level of trust he lets her go inside first into the hotel as well they do have a conversation about her not having told anyone about her immunity but we, we've kind of already gathered that yeah just from exactly. seeing her interact with dina it doesn't really tell us anything new this is it's kind of bog standard coming of age teenager yeah where uh from the beginning of the sequence with her only thinking about her her new relationship instead of whatever she is talking with tommy about to the i can do more than you're letting me do dad yeah uh, the rebellion there there's nothing here that's out of any other playbook than that this section takes the pair of them uh, into a hotel which is the primary i guess set piece of this it's filled with spores not much to note about this gameplay sequence. It's pretty standard. We get a bloater here, which I'm familiar with people that played the first game. And I guess it's kind of like the one thing this chapter brings uniquely beyond the, the sniping sequence. So you get this sustained fight with it in pretty close quarters. I don't know how you feel about bloaters. I am not a big fan of the fights, of the boss fights. It's a good way to cap off a sequence in like a dramatic fashion, gameplay-wise. But I don't find the 
sustained one-on-one fights that interesting in this game. This is a pretty common rite of passage for young people uh, in our world and in the world of The Last of Us. You usually have to fight a bloater uh, before you can be declared an adult officially. That's an American thing, or... Yeah, oh, oh sorry. Yeah, I, I, I forgot you You guys aren't familiar with uh, violence over there. <laughs> no, I'm just... <laughs> What I found interesting was the fact that in order to pass that fight, you have to be grabbed by the bloater, like in sort of a failed state right. sequence, and Joel then saves you, basically. Yeah, that is that is interesting, because in this point in time, Ellie has fought bloaters before with Joel, Yes, I guess as an NPC. Maybe there's a point to that. I, did, I didn't pick up on that, but you're right. I mean, there are stages of it. There's like, I think it's broken into three stages. In the beginning, if it grabs you, you die. <laughs> like, Joel does not save you. Right, it's not a cinematic moment. It's just that you screwed up way too early in this. Yep, yeah. and then there's another runner that shows up in the fight. And I think after you kill that runner, it triggers this moment where this fight becomes endless. Oh, Okay. Until it catches you. They need to ramp up the aggressiveness of the bloater at that point because there was a point where I was just, I didn't understand what I was doing wrong because he did not catch me and Joel kept shooting it. Oh, okay. You felt like. And it was going on for a while. And well, then. You, you got to fail at just the right time. This is like natural. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And then I failed and I'm like, oh, so that's what you wanted me to do. I need to replay this. That's interesting. Why don't you just like go insanely aggressive once that state is achieved instead of letting me keep going with the fight? I mean, I think it, it becomes a little bit more aggressive in the sense that it's following you more, doesn't pay as much attention to Joel. It just focuses on you. Are you sure that you didn't just happen to have Joel kill it right at the moment it caught you? <laughs> this was definitely... I can't I can't remember how this ends at all, so you could be totally right. I'm just wondering if... That's what happens. As soon as it catches you after a certain point... Joel kills it. That's the only way to progress. You can't kill it unless it catches you. I need to go back and play it. You, yeah. you were playing on Survivor the whole way through, so your NPC helpfulness was probably it. They're basically <laughs> a prop. They just <laughs> stand there and look like a tree. And or, wave at you. Know, you. Maybe, <laughs> just, just be like, yeah, maybe they actually uh, get the enemy's attention when you're in stealth and like, oops, sorry about that later on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like, they're worse than having no one there, I think, at that point. I felt like for the sequences of Joel, I should change that difficulty down. Although, what does that say about my thoughts on Dina? <laughs> like, Joel should be so much more helpful than Dina. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But for, like, these the happier flashbacks, I was like, I don't know. Joel should be good at this. <laughs> we get the big boss fight. We finish it. And then we kind of get to the, the main narrative point of this sequence post-Tommy where Ellie, you know, reveals... I, the game uses, like, some other device to, to try and bring this in naturally, although it still feels... I, I feel like we get the point. Like, we got the point even at the ending of The First Last of Us, that Ellie <laughs> suspects Joel. Yep. So, like, and the game keeps sort of hammering this uh, across the entire beginning of the game. And I'm not, I'm not sure that we need all these sequences. But there's some sequence where I think they find a note and they comment on the tragedy of these, you know, people and this triggers an outburst of survivor's guilt from ellie where she's like oh man if only we had gotten the cure yeah uh you know we could have saved them we could have saved so many others all these losses didn't need to happen these are all here because i have failed 
I wasn't able to to provide to the world what I should have, which is, of course, ludicrous. Uh, even if we believe the cure would have happened, like how long would it have taken to develop the vaccine and then distribute it? So, I mean, it's, it's just survivor's guilt kicking in and more hammering home this distrust of Joel from Ellie. I probably would have cut this whole sequence after the sniper run with Tommy, but it does provide us with our first bloater encounter. I don't know. Probably a lot more people would have criticized uh, her going to the St. Mary Hospital uh, later on uh, without this sequence, but I, w- I would have probably preferred it. <laughs> I guess the thing is, as long as the last flashback sequence we've seen ended on some on this note again, which the previous one did, it feels like starting a sequence where she's at St. Mary's makes sense. Like, we'll, we'll see her there. And I'm like, well, f- of course she would just come back at some point and check out what happened. I don't know. I would have bought it without needing the extra. We've had like three or four of these scenes. Yes. And it wants to be a bit clever as well, because there's a bit of meta text here as well, from developers and writers to players, when Joel says, I know you wish things were different, but they're not. (laughs) Well, is it a bit? (laughs) I mean, it works now. But I almost feel like the, well, we'll come to the reception later, but I feel like the developers might have been just as blindsided by the furor over. (laughs) I don't think it was a response to the fury of uh, reaction, but I do think it was also this meta text. They knew things were... You might have wanted a game with Joel again. Of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah, I I could see that. Maybe not expecting the the level of hatred that they got because they didn't get that, but... Sure. And they kept this line in the trailer as well. So they knew what they were doing with it. But once again, it's I feel it's a detriment when you're trying to be clever like this. It's a detriment to your characters. This game likes to pat itself so much, especially writing-wise. You mean when it feels like... When it feels like characters are giving a voice to like direct statements from the developers or writers rather than yeah. necessarily saying something that makes sense for them to say in that I mean, moment. It makes sense in the moment, but Still, it's, it reads. the way it's formulated. I see what you're doing. I see what you're trying to do. And, and it's not good. It's not helping me. Dr. Uckman has temporarily taken possession of Joel to speak directly to camera. <laughs> A bit too many of these little elements in this game, I feel like. We're going to get to the ending at one point. I hope so. But <laughs> Five years from now, but yeah. <laughs> There's so much there as well that, that we're going to get into. But yeah, that's pretty much how this flashback ends. It's, uh... Podcast will have to change protagonists to uh, a couple of other individuals who will not be named before we get to the end of this series, I think. Walk, walk through their shoes. <laughs> Suddenly uh... they discover they really like cinematic AAA games. The new games are the good games. <laughs> <laughs> it's an exercise in empathy with the daydream yeah, cast. Exactly. What? I don't. Whoa. I don't know what that was about. Nope. <laughs> Got a little yeah. bit of audio interference there. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's it. Flashback is over. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. But day two does not end here. <laughs> we find out from Dina that Nora, one of the gang, the uh, hateful eight. The yeah. Uh, Nora is in a hospital somewhere. So instead of resting and 
waiting for another day, we decide to go alone. Yeah, I think this is the first, maybe the first actual moment where Dina disagrees with the links Ellie is taking, but here it's kind of a logistical disagreement. Like, I think you should wait till we have one of us and less of a philosophical disagreement about the nature of revenge. Ellie does make a point of maybe she's going to move. If we wait, Nora might not be there anymore. And... Our, our inf- information is time sensitive, so. On our way to the hospital, we are introduced to two things. Uh, one is a new information well, we've been kind of introduced to this type of infected in the first Oh, God. One. These guys. The freaking stalkers. Annoying bunch. Creepy bunch. Probably the bunch. most scared I was at any point in the entire game. There are a lot more horror elements in this second part than in the first one, for sure, for me. There are... But specifically, not knowing the the full capabilities or nature of these enemies, and just like seeing them run off and then doing listen mode and not seeing a thing, I was like, oh no, 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 no. So these guys have been in the first game as well. But yeah, I didn't remember that at all. If I remember correctly, they've only been in one place, which is the basement of the hotel where you're alone and separated from Ellie. Okay. And there's this loader fight and three stalkers or something like that. But they're so quick, you don't really understand there's something separate. You don't separate. fully realize the terrifying capability of ignoring detective vision. <laughs> You just think like, oh, well, there's like three runners and a bloater. You don't really acknowledge the fact that it's like three stalkers. Now here, however, oh boy. They get a build up. Yes, they do. And it's a very creepy level throughout this building where they are. Isn't that the, the convention center? I think I've been there. Maybe. Yes. They have like a fake, they have like fake, there's some comic convention stuff. And I recognize the bridge over the street. I thought it all looked familiar. I'm pretty sure it's the Seattle Convention Center. Could be wrong. Yeah, the, I think it is a convention because they, Ellie goes in. There's this point where she sees something run off and that scared that she's out of me. Yep. This is the first time we've seen an infected do anything other than come at you once it knows you're there, which is weirdly terrifying. Yes, exactly. Sounding. Exactly. It's like, if this thing confronts me, if it fights me, if it enters action with me, I know how to deal with that. But it backing off, presumably having some intelligence and making plans, that is a whole new ball game. You know, if there's a spider in my room and I crush it, it's a lot different than the spider went to hide under my bed and I don't know when it's going to come back out to bite me later. <laughs> But I will say, I think the most scary thing about them was how I built them up in my head. Because once I noticed they didn't show up in the vision, I just, I ran screaming into the room. Like, literally screaming. I was screaming <laughs> in real life while I ran into the room. You know, charge me, motherfuckers, basically. And uh, they did Weren't it. you overwhelmed? They didn't show up at all. So then I ran screaming back out of the room, and they didn't follow me. And then I was truly terrified. Oh, man. And then I walked back into the room and started going around, and I noticed that... When they actually make the decision to come at you, they make sounds. Like, they will start... You'll hear them. Which is less scary than it could have been. Like, if if these guys could flank you and come at you from behind and just make no noise at all when they come at you, it would have remained completely terrifying. But once I realized, like, I will have a heads up that I'm being attacked before I get attacked... I had some fucked up encounters. These guys are, like, peering around corners or doors. Yeah, they let let you see them looking at you. Like, uh, unmistakably looking at you. And then choosing to run away. I was like, does it see me that I'm looking at it? And then like, I kind of turn around, grab something. Mm-hmm. And I see one of these fuckers and just like, kind of like runs around the corner. It was so close to me. 
And I'm like, oh my god, I, I hate this level so much. <laughs> it truly was the scariest moment up to that point in the game. And I think still may be the scariest moment in the game. There's one location I can think of towards the end of the game, but you're more aware and more capable by that point. Okay, so you deal with these stalkers. There, there are a couple of like levels, one after the other. You kind of fall into the water and get into the sewers. You get knocked into the water by a stalker, actually, don't you? Yeah. It like drags you down. It's kind of dejected because you're like, so much of this game is making progress seemingly city block by city block, and now it's like, oh god, who knows where the hell I've You have no idea like, where. Fuck, fuck Seattle. Fuck Seattle. <laughs> oh, that's not nice. That's I mean, city. I was kind of with Ellie on that. <laughs> with Ellie on that. I mean, it, in context, it makes perfect sense. So much rain. So much. Well, we'll get to that. Uh, but there is a point where they've introduced a stalker. And they introduced a stalker stuck into the wall. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I shut my pants. Is that there? Yes. The first one is right after that in the sewers. Okay. I remember the ones later on. This sort of hidden area where, like, you can get some goodies. Okay. And the thing is, it's, it's a really insidious technique because this is a scavenging, like, resource-like game. So, like, in, a, in another gaming context, the player might take away from this the learned behavior. All right, I'm just going to head check every zombie I run into buried in a wall from now on. But there are places in this game later on where there are lots of zombies like this. Most of them are not going to hop out at you. And if you do this, you're just going to waste a shit ton of ammunition. I just, it never became a habit. I always got jumped. It always got and you. And I always pulled my pants. <laughs> <laughs> it never became like, oh, yes, I remember these guys. <laughs> the... I'm comfortable with this now. Nope, never, never. It's always bad. I was the, we'll get to that, I know, but there was this point, the hotel point. Black Ray. This yeah. bloater in front of me, and I'm trying yep. to like figure out the best way to approach it. And as I'm sneaking towards it and like trying to put traps, the fucking stalker out of the wall, and I'm just, I just, I just put the pants. <laughs> I was done. I was. Uh, just I gotta just... wear the sock. For different reasons. Anyway, so... The tension of the day is not done there. This is the first time we get accustomed... Well, accustomed. We, we just meet the so-called scars or Seraphites. Yep. The player will have some awareness of their existence by now because of the WLF chatter. This is our first time meeting them in person. And man, it's like... I'm kind of disappointed in that I don't think any encounter after this is as effective as making them a terrifying force as this very first one. I agree. But their introduction is just pitch perfect. The The environment's great. It's this park, very dark, uh, shadowed park, and you have these fires burning through it. So it has a very ominous feel from the get-go. And your introduction to the fight is an arrow hitting you in the shoulder. And then just this completely alien system of communication. You just hear all these people whistling. Nobody's saying anything. You just hear whistling. And it's like, what the fuck is going on? It's so good. And there's like a guy with entrails hanging out in the background. And these people have, have already obtained a pretty nasty reputation probably in the player's mind by this point just by seeing their work. And you like bleed out when you get hit. I mean, this whole encounter is terrifying. If it feels like it feels like you can understand the WLF that this this was some like idealistic upstart faction that couldn't help but fall into the same flaws and problems that Fedra, who had previously managed the quarantine zones, did. So you can sort of you can sort of see how they came to be. But Scars is just what the hell is this? And it's in Seattle too, which is a, a weird relevant point to me because Seattle is one of the I should probably have a figure to back this up. I want to say Seattle is one of the most atheistic cities mm. in the nation. And this is a decidedly 
uh, they have like a very religious overtone to this faction. It doesn't. It just feels completely out of place for anything else in the game, in, in good ways and bad. Like I had no idea what we were dealing with. Yeah, they're vicious, and I think their portrayal gives a bit more leeway to Ellie's brutality. Right. The player probably feels a lot more comfortable taking these people out yeah. than they might the WL. These guys are just inhuman in the way they deal with, you know, yeah, you hanging see, you see and how they deal with other people. cutting the entrails out. It's just weird. They're they're more likely to carry, like, heavy melee weapons, so you get up close with them, and they're like, they just have vicious scowls as they're, like, swinging massive hammers, or they had, like, a reaping scythe, I think, in their hand at one point. It's just a from a whole other world, basically. After you deal with them, you get to the hospital bit, where we're trying to get to all along. You get there, and your first doing is to kill seemingly innocent girl that, well, she tried to attack you, so it was sort of self-defense. The last PlayStation Vita player. The girl playing Hotline Miami, I, like, recognized the music, and I was like, wait, what? Is that what I think it is? And you, like, looked down, like, oh, shit. Funny cameo. <laughs> That's a nice touch, given the game's emphasis on violence and suffering. <laughs> yeah. It's a cool nod. All WLF members uh, acclimate to the level of violence they will need to commit by training with Hotline Miami extensively before getting field duty, it turns out. The WLF mass-ordered Vitas. <laughs> <sighs> we confirm Nora's in the building, and we get, I guess, information on where sh- exactly she is in the building. Mm. From this unfortunate Hotline Miami Vita enthusiast. We do get a bit of fighting, and this is where we get familiar with a dog called Bear. I burned the hell out of Bear. Oh my god, no, you monster! (laughs) I never... I never once in the entire game used a Molotov cocktail on a dog. I couldn't. I blew some to bits, but that's instantaneous. No, I... Phew, the screams, man. God damn it. I don't know if I can take hearing about it second <laughs> No. I didn't remember this when I when I met Bear later on, so I didn't feel as bad about it. Damn it. I'm not going to be able to look at him the same again. No, I, I heard explicitly like, Bear, no, please, no. Do you think it's it's harder or easier to deal with killing all the dogs up front and then meeting them later than it would be if we met them nice up front and then we killed them? Because I can actually see arguments both ways. See, I don't think it really matters. I don't think it's a matter of easier or... I don't think it's really easy not knowing Bear. It's gonna suck both ways. I don't think, like, once you know Bear in the later part of the game, oh, now I feel bad about it. I think... I've heard this argument before, but I think we're going to get to it very, very, very soon. Because I think there's a lot to unpack there regarding agency, regarding what people think the game is trying to make the player feel versus what the game is actually doing, etc. Right. For my part, I viewed the game I mean, much the same way I view a lot of other games. It's like I'm basically just the actor. Yeah. And Ellie is the character that's being brought to life. These aren't these aren't my choices in performing the role. We're getting to a contentious part. At the end of this segment, you you meet with Nora, one of the hateful eight, and well, there's this encounter. She she basically you, you kind of take her to a place where there are spores. You knock her down into spores, yeah. And well, you're immune, so you don't care. But she, however, is not immune, so she's fucked up. She's she's about to die basically because of it. Worse. But yeah. Yeah. We find out a few things. First of all, Nora knows about Ellie. 
Well, she recognizes once she realizes. Yes, yeah, you're her, which kind of is the first context we're given to who these people are in relation to us and Joel. Yeah, I guess we could have guessed any number of things. I can't remember if they've referenced the Fireflies offhand yet or not. But we still don't, up until this point. Ellie asks, are you Firefly after she says that? And Nora says there are no Fireflies anymore. Which could be taken either way, but certainly sounds like, you know, if she was familiar with... You know, if it hurt, if the dissolution hurt like that, then she was probably one of them. So this is maybe the most concrete evidence we get towards what they were about. So now Ellie has her first proper hands-on. Yeah, she ha- she has total agency over this moment. This isn't this isn't like Jordan where she was being forced to defend herself, or either the other two that had already died. Like the fate of uh, Nora is just strictly in her hands. So Nora refuses to give Abby's location up, saying that she already is going to die. There's nothing Ellie can do. Ellie disagrees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not the same point of view Ellie has. And there are three prompts here, three button prompts, Ellie hitting Nora. So I've had friends really, really against this, which I found very interesting. Thus far, you're... Your choices in-game have been constrained to following Ellie's path of action and doing what Ellie wants. Ellie is the one determining everything that's happening. This cutscene is no different. I don't really feel any differently about having to press the square buttons here than any of the people that I shot or killed along the way, the dogs I had to kill. I think the square buttons are very important, but I think they emphasize Can we get that line out of context for the podcast intro? Which one? I think the square buttons are very important. That can just be the <laughs> opening <laughs> stinger. <laughs> and, and with that, I really think the square buttons the square. are important. <laughs> I think there's a duality regarding the fact that um, you have those button prompts and you have to press them. But I feel like the main idea for me is how it emphasizes her commitment to going through with it. I don't think is making the player say that, oh, you're doing the torturing. Any more than any other action that Ellie does, certainly, yeah. Yeah, I think the whole point is that after every blow, Ellie could stop, but she doesn't. But she still thinks <laughs> about it and you press it again, yeah. Yeah, I have seen some people complain that they believe the only moral action here is not to press the button at all. But to me, that's just the equivalent of hitting pause on a DVD. Hitting the button is not something to make you as a player feel something as much as emphasizing Ellie's relentlessness into, you know, choosing, committing to whatever we find out afterwards she did. One is enough. Two is already a lot, but three, I had friends telling me that by the third prompt, they were like, come on, but that's the whole point. Just deciding to do it at all doesn't, you know, doesn't carry it all out. You still have to feel each hit. You have to feel each blow as you bring it down. It is interesting because there there are certainly similarly, uh, I guess you might say, guilty moments for Ellie throughout the story that we are not put in control of. So it, it is... They single out this one in particular. I guess maybe because it's the first pronounced moment. I guess also because it's the moment she maybe has the most agency over. Even some of her later revenge kills are arguably done in defense. This is truly the 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 the, the one moment she has where like she could just walk away. I just want to say, by the way, that despite its depiction in all of fiction, wow, unintentional poet, um, <laughs> that. I'm under the impression that torture is actually a really unreliable way to ever get information. 
And then, and then every story is the logical escalation point for we really need to find this out, and we're willing to go to any depths to do it, despite the fact that historically it's proven to be a pretty terrible, terrible in effectiveness terms, not just in moral terms. But I've never been tortured, and I've never tortured anyone, so I'm not an expert. Well, I hope this stays. <laughs> yeah, I hope it stays this way. Just a random uh, life fact about about <laughs> Will Will there. Just you know, in case you're wondering, definitely never tortured anyone, unless you count. Eating 50 Lunchables is self-torture. Oh, that's masochism <laughs> right there. <laughs> it's not torture if I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, some, some might disagree. <laughs> um, I think the following casting is one of the best in the game, honestly. This is with Ellie back at the theater? Uh, yes, I mean, every bit in this one seems to have landed. From the shaky hand, the spaced out look and state of being Ellie's in when she says Abby's at the aquarium, all the way up to her breakdown. Maybe I could have done without a main aura talk, because, you know, like, the contrast and silence is so powerful since we can understand what had to happen for her to get that information. We have a pretty good idea of what went down. <laughs> it was not pleasant. I was surprised. I, I didn't think... Nora would have talked so the idea that Nora the person who said I would never give up my friend I'm already dying there's nothing you can do about it Nora's a liar clearly yeah that's the main <laughs> character trait to take away probably immediately gave her up between the second and third uh, square button yeah don't forget yeah. square buttons are important yep you can buy our our, our t-shirts with square buttons are important on the Twin Geeks store uh, <laughs> page but yeah, it really, it was quite powerful, the um, confession. And those arms pulling, going through fabric, the shirt coming off. Wow, it's, I'm led to believe this is very impressive. I mean, it was impressive to watch. Apparently, it's a lot more impressive technically. Yeah. I heard some stuff on the Incredibles commentary back in the day about limbs moving through, like cloth fabric simulation being a total nightmare. So I guess it still hasn't gotten that much easier this these days. I guess this is a moment where you could potentially see like an Owen figure challenge ellie but obviously tina's tina's mode is, is mostly support which i kind of get in this space it it seems natural um is there another flashback this day or is that it i think there's another flashback. i think this is the hospital flashback oh right 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 yep. so we have this flashback where ellie goes back to the soul lake uh, city hospital in search for answers and finds out what joel did basically there's a pretty vivid picture painted for her in what's left behind. And in the very subtle way of the writing of The Last of Us Part Two, <laughs> uh, there's this uh, recording that says, uh, if not only they killed everyone, but they killed the only person who could ever make a cure forever in the world. <laughs> I will say this game... This game coming out when it did has to run up a bit against the unfortunate reality that the average consumer now has a bit more of an idea of, of just how hard it is to make a vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we've been told this whole year, like uh, what the vaccine would take at least a year and a half to make if it if they found figured out a way to do it. And then like you have to distribute it and that takes a lot of resources. So like going back to this game. It's like, I don't know that they actually did jeopardize all that much because it seems like it was going to be a super long shot in the first place. And then you kind of look around at humanity and it's like... I think that's the point. Because if you look back, it's the culmination of everything. At that point, when Joel does what he does, everything was a culmination of 
you know, doctors, equipment, hospital, immune girl, urologist. There was a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a chance to be in that situation. Joel, not only did he screw everything up, but he screwed that chance up. It's likely never coming back, right? Yeah, but that's kind of like a contrivance of the game that it was all there in one spot. And but, I mean, I guess I still have to buy this as the fiction. This is the fiction we're operating within, even if I don't necessarily like it. My thing, though, was just that everything the game has shown us, the world has shown us even outside the game, humanity is screwed completely regardless of the virus. <laughs> and I, it's just like, is humanity even worth saving? Is it a moral act to save humanity? from this disease, given what they have done to each other, what they've done to the planet, you know, all of this. And I'm not convinced that it is the right thing, as monstrous as that might sound. As playing uh, playing the game, I've asked myself if the title of the faction called as WLF or Wolves was a sort of nod to the Latin homini lupus. It was like a man is a wolf to another man, which is basically man is no man but a wolf to a stranger. It's not a very kind name. It's not a name you take on to to you know get people to feel warmly about your organization. This phrase, the idea of man being a wolf, has been used throughout history as a sort of exposure of humans' inherent evilness in the lack of social structure and how social structures are the ones that sort of create the moral ground around us but how that can also have the opposite effect at the same time because you justify wrong through a social social contract yeah yeah that makes sense we don't really get to see the full history of the wolves but we can sort of guess at what happens i think we get significantly less history for the scars uh so anyway, we're in a flashback. We find out that, again, a very subtle manner, that Joel did the bad thing. And Joel comes, finds us, because, you know, he's a worried dad. Ellie snuck out. Her suspicions finally got the better of her. And she just went for herself to see what happened. She snuck out without Joel knowing. And then Joel, I guess, as soon as he found out, followed immediately afterwards. That's uh, like a five-hour drive to get from Jackson to Salt Lake. I have no idea about like the geography of. Oh, it's actually pretty close. Okay. Uh, Jackson Hole to Salt Lake. It, Salt Lake's probably the closest major city, unless you count Boise to Jackson. There's a lot to unpack as Ellie finds out. Joel comes, finds her, and once again, even after this, even after confirmation, Ellie still gives him the chance of again: is this or nothing? If you don't answer truthfully, I'm out. I'm gone. Fuck off. Yeah. And Joel explains what he did. Well, Joel was right. She is not happy about this. <laughs> Apparently, she didn't take it very well. Amazing foresight. And there's a, there's a deal being made there that she's coming back to Jackson, but she doesn't want to have anything else to do with Joel. So this is kind of specifically taking away the reason for the selfish act in the first place. If you if you think of Joel as saving her, not because of the moral value of a life or the sanctity of her giving consent for the operation, but just because he wants to keep a daughter, then Ellie is punishing him for this act by taking away the, the very thing he did it for. Yeah. 
that relationship. He also puts us in a in an interesting position as players, knowing Joel's and Ellie's relationship the, in the current day or whatever you want to call it. I think it was at this point that I was I was expecting a reconciliation, like a full blown reconciliation, to happen at some point in like another flashback after this, because Ellie has been fairly passionate uh, in her pursuit of vengeance for him, and it turns out the reason for that is going to be the exact opposite. But we'll we'll get to that much much later. So Ellie wakes up. There's also this nice part here where you wake up alone and you go to the very front of the theater. And it's the first time you see the backstage and that whole design is set up for a fight. I I knew there would be a fight in that theater. Ah, at some point. Yeah, that's a good call. I didn't make that connection myself, but you could probably look through just the layout. It's, it's like any of these games, these third-person oriented games with cover as an element either for stealth or for, for shooting, there's usually a very noticeable distinction between pass-through environments and environments where you're going to have an encounter because you're going to get that critical mass of cover objects well distributed throughout the whole environment as well as like passages to sneak through and you know tall grass if you're outside you know there's any number of sort of markers you can look for to see in these types of games Uh, after you play enough games in this mold you will eventually start to pick up on that pattern and and realize it unconsciously i mean they've been doing a better job in the in the second part in the first game there are some very obvious box box telegraphs box box type of scenarios in the second one i think the openness of the level design really managed to balance that but because this one is very restricted and as we'll see it's for a boss fight it feels a lot more set up. I think sometimes they're even aware of this uh, knowledge on the player's behalf, and they toy with it some. I'm thinking specifically of the uh, television station encounter we covered earlier, because I remember progressing through that area and noting the placement of objects throughout and realizing, oh, there's cover objects. We're about to get into a firefight. So I'd slowly creep in. Absolutely nothing would get triggered or happen. Then I'd creep forward a little bit more. Nothing happened. And it turns out, oh, we're going to let you get to the end of the sequence, then narratively something's going to drive you back through it, and then you're going to get the fight. And it's like, okay, well played there. <laughs> My, I, I just spent the whole time looking like an idiot because I thought I, I had a read on you game. They do some interesting things with uh, the expectations of players. We've talked about uh, before with the first flashback when, when you're alone with Ellie in that part of the museum and you expect to have a fight and they play certain items you can uh, pick up and usually indicators that uh, a fight is about to start yeah. or you know the taken by surprise workbenches and stuff like that it's one of those elements that narratively shouldn't telegraph anything these characters are in a world where they scavenge and they encounter supplies in random locations but to us as a player we understand that the presence of a supply usually indicates that you know you're gonna have to use it immediately especially in the context of a flashback where you can't even take those supplies forward so there's they're really <laughs> messing with like the meta layers of expectations where we know things the characters can't know they're toying with players but yeah going back to our present uh, well present day so to speak ellie goes to that theater and we see that backstage and as i said i realized that would be a combat scenario at some point i don't know exactly in what way but in my mind that kind of clicked then she leaves that area and finds jesse by dinner side that looks very sick and that's when ellie tells jesse that dinner's pregnant which I think triggers largely a similar reaction in him as it did in Ellie, which is, you know, we're going to have to get her back. But Ellie still wants to see this thing through. So before they can get her back, 
they have to finish it out. And I think Jesse sees the, the quickest line to getting Dina to safety to be yeah, somewhat confusingly to go back into danger and finish this out without Dina so they can immediately start taking her home. By this point, especially after Nora, I think that was a, a turning point. The player and Ellie sort of, the path yeah. kind of split a little bit. The player is now questioning Ellie's decisions. Maybe up to that point, maybe you could sort of justify all the, the deaths up to that point on her, on her hands as her you know, just doing self-defense. But Nora is explicitly the first case where it can't be mistaken as anything but incredible vengeance and, you know, a very angry act. Uh, I think it is supposed to be the point where it splits players a little bit from her. Maybe they're no longer aligned one-to-one. But yeah, I, I agree that, I, I think if you're trying to read into developer intent there, that is supposed to be the moment where things change a little bit. And I think what they do here with Jesse as well it's another step in that direction where Ellie agrees that Dina's life is important. They have to go back. But she really wants to get her vengeance. So in order to hide that fact, she uses Tommy as an excuse. And I feel like from the very get-go, it's an excuse. Even though she says, let's just find Tommy, get Tommy out, and let's get the hell out of here. We're going to actually get to a point in this chapter where we can really discuss that but i i I think that is the case and i think coming off that thread jesse is almost a stand-in for the player and that he is a supportive friend to ellie's goals but it's also at this point that he sort of starts to push back at ellie a little bit too so if there's an audience surrogate i think jesse is almost more it than dina uh in these scenes but they set out we have a bit of banter between them it's interesting because after the last flashback, the St. Mary Hospital flashback, we know that Ellie properly knew everything. what Joel yeah. did. Torturing Nora, we kind of assume that she also found out what the, their relationship, their group's relationship was with Joel. Yeah, it's, we didn't bring that up, but that paired with the Nora scene would be another part of potentially driving the player apart. It's much easier to sympathize with Elias just thinking this is someone that Joel maybe screwed over in a business deal or something coming to kill him versus us knowing that she knows that not only did Joel <laughs> mess up the uh, business of the Fireflies, but like killed tons of them in the process and lied to her the whole time. So now that we know this as well, alongside her actions to Nora, these are just... We're just piling on the reasons you might feel more distant to, from Ellie now. Jesse asks Ellie, did you find out the reason why uh, why they went after Joel? And she says, yeah. yes. She gives some... Uh, A filtered answer. <laughs> but the important question is when Jesse asks, does that change anything for you? And she says, no. So this is one of those moments where I look at like the flashback placement and think, was that a natural home for it to be? Or does it feel like there's any level of, like it's contrived in a way uh, that that you've sort of artificially, uh, I use the word artificial, all of storytelling is in a manner artificial, but it's, the placement is, is, is strictly to deprive you of knowledge so it can elicit a reaction out of you later. Of course. Or does it make, does it make any sense for Ellie to think on this flashback in this moment when she wouldn't have thought about it earlier? You know, is there, it's just a natural home for it. I think you can have both. I think they spent a lot of time trying to do these mechanical storytelling devices, writing-wise. Same thing they did with the prologue, where they eased you in with a very predictable type of gameplay and narrative. 
after that point. So that point is the most effective, the most repulsive, the most irredeemable. And I feel the placement of the flashbacks work very much in very similar ways, where they're done mechanically to elicit a certain reaction at a certain point, or to enhance that reaction at a certain point. I kept trying to have a different read. I, I think I ultimately agree with you, but I kept trying to have that read where the narrative is just putting these in spots where Ellie would think of them, because that would sort of forgive the uh, manipulative read I had on the. They try to do that, but they would never be like, same goes for Abby, same goes for Ellie. They would never be chronological. You don't think... Right, you don't remember in that manner. Yeah. And such a perfect placement for an outside viewer, too, (laughs) where you construct a a perfect narrative across all of them. I do think you could have a read where this flashback follows right after the scene with Nora, and this is sort of the first time that Ellie might be, you know, coming to grips with the heinous her own actions might be this is arguably the first time she might feel severe yeah i mean she lives in a world where she's killed people maybe she's struggled with it before but this is certainly stepping it up a bit so maybe there is some self-guilt over i've I've just done something truly heinous and you could maybe mark that memory of finding out what joel did as you know joel did something truly terrible and I'm, i'm gonna think about that specific moment at the same time that i'm struggling with my own moment like this is this what he felt like after that and I think there's maybe a read there that, that places it more naturally. But yeah, it, it does look like, you know, kind of like withholding knowledge until the exact right moment in time to get the strongest emotional reaction out of the player. You get a classic Naughty Dog signpost. One of the things they, they like to have in these sort of lengthy getting somewhere chapters is that big uh, marker on the horizon that you can constantly look to from multiple spots throughout the journey uh, to sort of gauge how close you're getting. And that is the, the Ferris wheel we have in, here in Seattle next to uh, the aquarium area. Uh, so it's cool to see that little landmark in-game. The big thing, I think, about today's journey is the the boat at some point. Oh, Although yeah. There's some stuff to get there. They're sort of going through Seattle downtown, making their way down a very wet portion of the city. They're trying to find out uh, how they can possibly go to get there. And they see there's this sort of highway, and they say, well, that's one way of doing it. And then they see this boat, but that could also Ah, right, work. yeah, off in the distance. And one of the cool things they've done with the, the overgrowth in Seattle is they've kind of created this river network through the whole city where it's flooded, and now we now have rivers in downtown Seattle <laughs> that uh, run and split up around the high-rises and uh, just give it a very different feel. So you see the boat and start making your way over to it. At some point, I think it's around this point, maybe it's right as you get within sight of the group to hold the boat, they overhear a conversation about a sniper giving them hell. I presume to be Tommy, and then we also have the information from the flashback sequence that you know Tommy prefers to engage with a sniper rifle. And this is where Ellie's motivations get revealed, because <laughs> Jesse wants to split off. And go after Tommy, and she wants to head over and uh, deal with Abby at the aquarium, and just hope that Tommy is fine. He knows how to handle himself, or catches up, or is on the way to the aquarium. Whatever else she needs to tell herself to sort of justify that continued direction. She says a line where she says, "The best way we can help Tommy is going after Abby." <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's about? like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he has guys clearly on his tail. And the writers go an extra mile here to 
not antagonize, but just highlight how shitty Ellie is being right now when she just says to Jesse, if you're leaving, I'm not going to save your ass again or something like that. It was the reverse. The end result, uh, gameplay-wise, beyond the narrative conclusion, is that you know we've had a short section with Jesse, and now we're going to split up again. And it's going to be Ellie on her own, making the final journey. Getting the boat after Jesse left was probably the most intense stealth segment of the entire game for me. I don't know about the entire game, but I think this is like the most fully fleshed out, unique encounter that Ellie gets. Uh, except for maybe the very last one at the tail end of the game, but that's almost more of a that's almost more of a predator combat. Exactly. Than exactly. The, the, like this is this is pretty cool. It uh it's a multi level divided into two segment compound that's flooded. You can there's holes in the ground underneath the water where you can swim between different rooms effectively. The only issue I had here was again I found the opening the spot they put you in to start um, is very very prone to getting you spotted where I, I kept retrying because I, I wanted to get that you know nice run going and I feel like the hardest part of the entire encounter, as was the case with lots of ones in this game, was just that very opening. Uh, where I'm looking up into dark spaces and can't quite make out enemies. They have better vision than me. Um, and I, I felt like if I could just get into sort of the department store on the right, <laughs> I could, I could wait, I could get from there cause there's well-placed cover, but you just sort of start exposed and need to swim down and out of sight, but it's a fun fight. This is definitely one of the better encounters that Ellie has in the game. One of the most memorable ones. I love that it starts you off in a, not necessarily disadvantage, but this almost exposed position where you have to move and think fast. And I think because of that, it is the peak of what this game wants to do gameplay-wise. This is how every moment of The Last of Us should feel like. You don't really have time to think or strategize or there's a lot of shit going on around you. You can't just linger around. You can't just... You have to keep going. And yeah, as you said, there's so many levels. There's the underwater, there's the holes, there's the... And with an AI that is smarter than a lot of games, at least on the on the higher difficulties, this has been an insane encounter for me. I think I spent like an hour and a half on it. Yeah. If you want to do it right, you can easily spend that much time there. And I was probably... At the end of it, I was sweating almost as much as I am right now. Right now? <laughs> yeah. The London heat. I think I missed some of the stuff you could do on the left side of the room until the end of the encounter. Like, I just didn't see... Because you start in, like, a pool of water, like, looking out into the main pond, I guess you would say. And then there's, like, a, a lone guard on the left. And he's just sort of out on a strip of, of uh, leftover building. But there's a whole section behind that you can go through. And the, you're sort of closer to this right side structure where there's multiple guards and you can see stairs leading up. And it, it felt like I was supposed to be going that way. Uh, and that's where the, all the detail was. But I do think there was probably an entrance I could have, you know, some sort of infiltration you could have done starting on the left that I just missed uh, until the end. When I saw it at the end as I was scavenging through things, I kind of wanted to just restart the entire encounter and <laughs> try it from that direction. I should get back and do that one, though. That's a fun fight. I want to go back to that one. I mean, I've used everything. I've used uh, trap bombs. I've used everything I had on my arsenal I've used in that fight. It was just one of the most extremely tense and incredible encounters in the game for me. Absolutely. That one. There's another fun fight shortly after this from the boat, too, where I think 
So the game sort of identifies sections that you're going to need to be in a boat to progress through by having these like half-submerged panels that you can't swim over as a human being, but you can jet over in the yeah. motorboat. Uh, so you get past that, and then there's like a blown-out structure that you approach from a major, like almost like a lake, and see Seraphite's hunting someone in. And you can kind of park behind uh, a structure out in the water and swim up, or you can go, you can try and just jet straight in uh, into an opening in the building and then infiltrate from tunnels under there. Sort of make your way up this, like, three or four story buildings with all the seraphites facing out towards you uh, they were hunting somebody else but i think they sort of catch a glimpse of you so they're yep loosely aware but not looking for you but this is another fun primarily stealth i think it's very easy to get into combat in the first encounter near the boat but this one you can do wholesale stealth a lot easier this is an incredible encounter for snipers as well because there's a suspended uh, train. Oh, yeah, that section. I only went, there's a spot there you can, I think it's like collectibles and scavenging yeah. stuff. I went there after the fight, so I didn't get to use it for that. But I was thinking when I went up there, like, man, if I had been here before and just pulled out the rifle. Oh, yeah, it's could beautiful. You just taken out everybody. It feels glorious. Do they like see you? If you like notice that you're. Oh, yeah, at some point they do. But you just have the high ground, Anakin. They can't do anything. I mean, if you're in a suspended train, what are they going to do? Right. When you resolve to use ancient weaponry only it's gonna be a problem against a floating train there are some really fun encounters in this day three yeah the boat is fun the boat is really fun <laughs> i think we're gonna see as we move into the second half of the game the encounters get more complex there's one sort of regret or thing i wish they could have done differently about the first part is that ellie just doesn't get as many fun layered encounters but here at the very end of her journey we're getting the best stuff she does get and, and this stuff is really fun oh yeah and for me, I thought the boat from the title screen, I thought this was the boat. Obviously, I didn't do a comparison either. It just looked kind of the same. And I never really understood, I mean, at the end of this day, <laughs> I never really understood why they had the title screen, the boat. It feels climactic going into it too, right? Like if you're still assuming that this is sort of wrapping up the journey, like there's the expectation that we are finally going to come face to face with Abby because... We finally got hard information on her. It's not searching for somebody else that might have information on her or rumors. It's no, she's at the aquarium. Go to the aquarium. So it feels like the boat is, you know, this vessel taking us to our final confrontation. And there's, again, uh, storms building up, which is something the game used in the prologue to build up tension. Here we have, uh, you know, again, increasingly poor weather throughout the day, which will culminate in a sequence later on. So, like, the boat on the water is, you know, at the time it feels like imagery you would associate with the climax. Which, as it turns out, is correct, but maybe not in the way you, you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not this boat, not this climax. We also have another bloater fight. In yeah, so you get to your two sort of person-on-human fights, and the game seems like it shifts into one of the downtime scavenging sections after them, placing you in an arcade where you get a little bit of world-building, scavenge for supplies, and you're just sort of doing a routine. It's not really a puzzle, but just like a navigational clearing the way what feels like a, you know, again, downtime segment, and all of a sudden the floor just falls out, and you get a bloater fight in the arcade itself i have to praise once again naughty dog i mean pacing wise this might be a little bit weird but it's still kind of building towards this final destination we're going to with these increasing encounters and this storm ramping up and we have the wlfs with the boat then the seraphites in that sort of lakeish area and then this bloater as well in this arcade what's left at the end of it uh, but i have to give once right. again props the details to these places man the 
the arcade. I just looked at every note, at every computer, at There's every game. There's a lot game. of unique assets in this game. It is and they insane. are all like expensive, high detail assets. It's like, I feel guilty almost playing it. Because like you, you play through this stuff and you know a lot of people must put in a ton of work on this. Like, this, how sustainable is this? Obviously, we will get into the crunch problems probably towards the end of the episode more of the right yeah. things. i mean absent the news just seeing the art, art assets it's like god damn. i'm sure the people who made those are extremely proud and they should be i have never seen environments this lived this beautifully Not at this rendered detail in this quantity for sure like everything in here is unique to this one spot yeah it's insane and again it's working with you know if the classic game lexicon tries to throw in variety by you get to work with like ice world or fire world or something dramatically different but all this game is mostly set in seattle but they find ways to constantly create a unique visual signature to each chapter or part of the day so you can think back to that that tv station or that school or the convention center or the international district the synagogue obviously i would have loved the library i still pay them for not doing the library <laughs> yeah especially especially that library that is like my favorite it looks even better on the inside ah, man i really wish they had whatever missed opportunity naughty dog but yeah their environments are just out of this uh, they're beyond anything i've seen from any other developer or publisher or... what are my other thoughts on it red dead redemption 2 is also kind of on this level but yeah basically the lesson is crunch incredibly hard and spend a ton of money across a ton of studios and you can you too can have this <laughs> but yeah it's a it's a good day you know crunch has been and again we're gonna probably gonna go a bit more in depth later on but crunch usually is a symptom of poor management and i'm not saying that's not the case here i've seen talks about iterating and reiterating on a scene tens of times until you get it perfect you know uh, but that's just a part of the creative process what i mean by a bit of a different thing here is the result i can see the crunch right. the naughty dog as you said everything feels so expensive the details are so minutiously handmade it feels like every single bump is just not there's no reuse of any asset i mean i'm sure there is but it feels like there is no reuse of any it's asset. pretty intelligent asset reuse there's there's always um sort of dramatic signpost assets in any given environment that give it its distinct visual signature and then maybe there's a chair or something on the side that you're not looking at for the core identity of the place that is reused but there's always enough unique stuff in every single location you go to in the city that it feels like a, a different quote-unquote world from like a Mario game or whatever. When I look at this, I see the insane amounts of hours put into it. I can see them translated in the quality of the work, the art, the environment, the animations, etc. I see the distinction you're trying to make between like uh, crunch is a way to overcome the fact that we just really kind of screwed up the whole dev cycle or didn't manage things well and this is the inevitability versus our aims are just so insanely high detail that without crunch we aren't getting there yeah so anyway we had a bloater fight <laughs> as i said earlier i'm not a huge fan of the bloater fight i think pacing wise this was a pretty cool move just sort of tripping up your expectations while you're kind of relaxing letting your guard down that was cool and uh, it does again feel like as you mentioned earlier you have you have what feels like it could be a culmination of the game's fights versus the uh, WLF, I guess, except minus dogs, because uh, they couldn't put them in the water environment. That would have been cool. Swimming dogs. There's your Last of Us Part 3 key feature, Naughty Dog. You can pay me later. And then we have our big, I guess, cinematic moment as you ride the boat out past the arcade. The storm is sort of picked up, and uh, the boat gets flipped over. 
You have to swim towards the land. And it's just you here. Jesse's already left you to look for Tommy. Here, I definitely thought there would be some kind of marine infected or... Oh, okay. We got a dolphin zombie. What? <laughs> it's Flipper. We're going to get to a point where we're going to discuss about uh, acrophobia and like other fears. But we have two characters that one is uh, afraid of heights. One is afraid of the ocean. I'm afraid of both. <laughs> I have the ocean fear and claustrophobia. Heights don't get me unless it's super exposed, like on both sides. But that that will get me. What about what about the boat turning over? Did that get you? So yeah, I mean, it didn't get me as much as you know. It was this thing of I'm here. That's where the shore is. Well, whatever. It's not really a shore, but something to climb on. And I was just afraid something something in the water is gonna get me. <laughs> <laughs> right, something you can't see. It's going to grab your feet and pull you down. And I think it's also because of this ramping moment that we've talked about so much. You know, the, it everything is just tension build up. So you could do like a classic uh, RE4 reference here. With like exactly. The, like exactly. <laughs> I did feel like that would be a bit too B-movie for this universe. So it wasn't a specific fear that occurred to me here. But as we'll see later in this game, the, the game isn't... Uh, wholly averse to throwing in B-movie monsters. Perhaps if I had encountered that first, I would have been more scared of tentacles coming up. But as we're going to see in general, the uh, the aquarium is kind of empty. Oh, yeah. You're expecting the big fight. You're expecting the big... I was expecting, I was expecting like a big one-on-one, like an end of MGS4 fist fight or something. There had been implication, I think, to this point that Abby has kind of retreated away from the WLF. It wasn't necessarily clear what type of place the aquarium was going to be, but I was expecting her to be a little bit more alone. I just wasn't expecting it to be quite this much. And I also expected her to be there, <laughs> which, as we're going to see, she's she's not. I was sure this wasn't the end of the game. There was something just lacking. I had some meta expectations created by things I had heard from other people that had me thinking it wasn't going to be the end of the game either. But I think... Had I not heard those things, I might have expected it. I don't know. It just felt not enough. It is very quiet. Especially because of these innuendos throughout that Abby has ruptured from WLS. Yeah, we haven't gotten any of that story. So I was expecting some sort of twist regarding that. I was expecting a huge boss fight and a turning point towards the epilogue. I didn't expect this to be the half of the game, but I didn't expect this right. to be... Right, you just expected something after... Yeah, I expected this sort of to be the equivalent of last part of the winter episode in the first one, where you're going towards the David fight. Mm -hmm. And then maybe there's like a... Then there's the spring chapter. Spring. Yeah. Sure. There's like a shorter chapter, but it's still there to sort of fill in details. Uh, The specific thing I had been told was, you will know when you get to the halfway point. Well, it's really weird to be in fiction and know... This is the halfway point. It's like, what, what is going to tell you within the fiction itself that you just reached the halfway point? And I'd already done the playable section with Abby at the beginning. So I was thinking, oh, this is going to be Rashomon. And I'm going to see the same same events uh, twice from different perspectives. Because that's like one of the few things you could see that would that would clearly signal to you, you know, I'm at the halfway point. I've, I've finished the timeline with one character and now I'll do it with another. So I wasn't convinced that was it, but it had occurred in my mind. So the whole time I was sort of skeptical about this ramping up but just looking back through the day that we have described to date on day three i do think the game 
makes an attempt at creating a meta expectation that uh, it is ending by having these climactic sure. encounters and the, the weather. And there is something to be said for like, you know, you go through your big fights, your big set piece fights, and then you end on a quiet, intimate 1v1, which was still possible in the fiction at this point in the aquarium, just sort of moving through this ominous dark place that's very empty almost like a, a western showdown in an abandoned town or something the aquarium has been mentioned throughout a little bit you know classic horror vibe of a park enjoyment park or There's something artificial about it exactly maybe we should have fought an abby zombie here that would have been <laughs> you get you get inside oh no she's already a zombie <laughs> you get bum rushed by a dog Yes, you, right. you get bum rushed by a dog. He's the only dog you have to kill in the game. You don't have any choice. This is just sur to survive, because the dog attacks you immediately. And I think we come to know this dog later, sadly. This is Alice? Alice, yes. Is it Alice? Yeah. yeah. We obviously have no attachment to the dog at this point, but it's a dog, so... We have some attachment. I feel, I feel I feel worse about the dogs than I do the humans for sure. Seems to be a normal response. I think it's it bothered me more than Nora. I think it's because of their almost lack of choice. But that's exactly what it is. I view humans as having agency in their actions, and it's like we created a shitty world and did shitty things to each other. So I sort of tend to hold the whole species more accountable than animals that we just employ in our service and that really have lack the intelligence to say it better whether this is moral or not you know it uh, is not wrong but that that tends to be how i react my brother's going through the game right now and he's not killing any of them but insisting on killing all the humans so he's having a hard time because he also doesn't shoot uh so <laughs> he has to separate each of them and then he has to melee stealth kill the human and then he has to break away. I want to do a full stealth run. I want to do like a no kill. Oh, and can't even use the bow? Yeah, no, just a proper, I'm not going to kill anyone type of thing. You can use the stun grenade, at, at least, I guess. It is nice that this game commits to its tools. And uh, that, like, if you're going to use your tools, you're going to have to kill for the most part. Like, it's not like, a lot of stealth games just have, like, the... You're going to get one set of tools for lethal and one set of tools for non-lethal, and there's basically no utilitarian difference between them. So there's absolutely you're not taking on any increased risk really, or having to pay any kind of cost for doing the right thing. You can just do it fairly easily, and there's no trade-off uh, that would make that an interesting conflict for the player. So anyway, we get to the creepy aquarium. We're jumped by this dog, kill the dog. And QTE reaction. Yes, this is something we can't avoid. And we start walking through the empty, scary aquarium. Storm outside, full on storm. We see some uh, blood and suchers on a table. We find uh, some sleeping bags of a room with quite a few sleeping bags. And we hear... We hear voices through a door. Yeah. Pretty classic setup. And we, we do find Owen's Firefly um, pendant as well. Yeah, which is kind of the last... If you needed more confirmation after the Nora scene, then I guess this is kind of the final piece. This is where I gave up on my hope that uh, these people were just like smugglers or something that have been screwed over by Joel. <laughs> you, you were still holding on really, to that. <laughs> I was really, really hoping it had absolutely nothing to do with anything we saw in the first game because it, it was already established that it could have been any number of other things and it would have felt it would have just felt so much messier in real life to me but 
I mean, it, it makes sense that you want you want that ending to be super relevant. Yeah, that dream died here. I found a very interesting gameplay detail here that I don't exactly know why they did it, but it's just one of those extra little things. There's a health bar, a chocolate on the table, and if you pick it up it bumps into a bottle of some kind that falls on the table and makes noise and Ellie says, oh shit, or something like that. I don't think I had this. I must have missed it. I tried to see if that was just random and I tried to recreate it. Yeah, that's, every time I picked up that thing, it does that... that uh, it just kind of goes to show and tell how much of the randomness of the game is so handcrafted. I found it very small, doesn't do anything, but interesting and great, I guess. Mm-hmm. Did you play with subtitles on? I did, yeah. Is it subtitling the conversation in the other room or just saying anything like muted sounds or something? I don't remember okay. what it does I, be, exactly, but... Uh... I'd be curious if, like... If you have subtitles on and it's describing the conversation and then you have that happen, does it like cut off the other subtitles as though the characters are now listening out or something? Yeah, so I didn't hear any of the conversation, but then I went and opened the door. I don't think I've ever played a game that takes the wind out of its sails as (laughs) passionately and effectively as The Last of Us. Everything throughout this day is just this big, big, big build-up. And the last thing we have from this aquarium is this cutscene. A domestic dispute. <laughs> uh, I think we know Owen. We definitely know Owen's name. You, I mean, you might remember Mel just in the sense that Owen was clearly in, had a significant relationship with another female character beyond Abby. So even if you couldn't make the name-face connection, you might make the association here. Owen and Mel are arguing over something. Owen wants to go after Abby on an island somewhere. We don't really understand what that means or why, but they're having a dispute. There's an implication the island is dangerous. Uh, I think Mel insinuates that, you know, like, well, this is a choice Abby made, a risk she made, a risk she shouldn't have taken. But that's fine. That was her choice to do it. That doesn't mean we have to go after her. She's. I don't remember what she says, but I think it's something poorly written. (laughs) Uh, It's one of those... Now I gotta pull up the... I gotta pull up the cutscene now. Because <laughs> we, we I think this is something like nobody gets back alive from there. Oh, nobody yeah, has come like out alive from that situation. They don't explain who the island's associated no, with, no, right? Like no. we don't know the. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually watching the cutscene right now. I mean, I might be wrong. She might, she might not say that, but that's how I remember it. Uh, they do recognize Ellie as the girl from Jackson, so obviously. The, that alone says, you know, a ton. Like the fact that, that that girl is all the way here when when not even their own people already in Seattle can find their way here. They didn't give them any identity information. It's like the fact that she is here is notable. And one of the things we're going to find out as we move into the second half of the story, you know, you might be thinking, we're taking down a ton of people. We're taking on Duns- WLF. The people we encounter mention that, you know, the others is trespassers uh, we're hunting. You might think that Ellie has developed a massive reputation by now amongst the organization, that maybe they're all keeping track of what's going on with us, they're worried about us showing up. But actually, it, it, it's going to turn out as no, nobody is really prepared for Ellie, and nobody's really thinking about her, because there's other things afoot. Uh, and the number, like with the numbers that WLF has, even the huge numbers of people she's killed, it's kind of small potatoes. 
LA Trust employee Jesse and Tommy's interrogation technique. Joel. Oh, yeah, yeah, not Jesse. Sorry. Uh, to find out where Abby is since she's not here. Ellie tries so much to be like Joel, but she so isn't. And she's so out of her depth. I don't know if it's explicitly trying to emulate him or if it's just this is the only way she knows how to interact with adversaries. Or For Joel, it was natural. The way he was, it was natural. We've never questioned Joel. How comfortable he was. That's why so many people have problems with Ellie's character and the things she does, especially like the ending. Because they feel like the character wouldn't do that or they're very unsure how to read Ellie and how to read her character because it's such a complex and a lot more complex character because unlike Joel, we've seen her from an innocent kid up to this point. And Joel never had that. We never saw him as the you know, guy who had to go to those transformations. We've heard of them, but when we play as Joel in the first one, he's a man with very strict convictions. And everything he does, there's no stutter. There's no doubt. He goes, and as he says in the ending, well, I'm not going to say it, but he's very sure of what he's doing. It's not something he regrets. It's not something he doubts. Right. I was going to say, it's not even just the uh, his approach to things, but also the lasting impacts they leave on him. He is not really shaken exactly uh, by his actions afterwards. He doesn't. If there is an effect, he keeps it under the surface. Uh, it's not really perceptible. The change that happens with him is mostly with regard to his ability to be open to other human beings at a social level, and less less with regard to how he deals with uh, antagonists, adversaries. Like he he knows how to to deal with conflict, and his his behavior in that regard doesn't really change over the series, even if Ellie's kind of learns this how to, how to do that herself throughout. Um, I also think the situations that Ellie puts herself into the, in this game are uh, more complex than the ones we see Joel deal with in the first one. I mean, there's Sam and Henry in the first game, but I don't, I don't think any specific choice that Ellie or Joel has to make with regards to them is, is anywhere near as uh, as heavy, I guess you might say. It's the stuff that Ellie will it like put is herself responsible for putting uh, herself into. Uh, I think Ellie perceives the whole group, the collective group of the Hateful Eight, or whatever is, is kind of a single entity. Uh, but in this scene, if you're you know observing, you can you can see there's a little bit of a different dynamic between Mel and Abby and Owen and Abby. Um, in terms of Mel and Owen's willingness to respond to Ellie's demands, uh, Mel is pretty open to giving up Abby. It's clear that she thinks that Abby has sort of made her current path and road for herself and uh, would, would rather leave Abby to deal with the consequences. Whereas Owen, for whatever reason, either out of loyalty or maybe out of something more, doesn't want to give up Abby. Uh, and Owen kind of uh, not instigates, because obviously Ellie being there is the reason there's any conflict at all, but Owen is what escalates the scene into an outright conflict. Things get out of Ellie's control because she doesn't have them... You know, this isn't this isn't Joel. He doesn't have them strapped to a chair before he attempts to interrogate. He just She just waltzes in and uh, tries to pull it off, you know, freestyle. <laughs> uh, and then Ellie does technically kill them both out of... Self-defense, uh, although this, you know, again, the whole scene is instigated by her presence in the first place. It's hard to, you know, say <laughs> she's blameless in this situation. Uh, 
Owen attempts to say something before he dies, pointing at Mel. Uh, Ellie unzips Mel's jacket and realizes she's pregnant and then has a bit of a breakdown herself. Speaking of subtitles, if you listen to Owen when he said, you can hear pregnant. Like you can I couldn't hear crap, but that was probably on me. <laughs> I've replayed that part and you can hear it. He says pregnant. <laughs> it's dying word. That sounds almost comical that way. But, God. but the subtitles doesn't pick it up. That's an interesting thing to point out too, because I guess the idea is that the unborn child is innocent to all this, but it's, I guess my whole perspective is that uh, Ellie has long since deviated from the path of righteousness or whatever. <laughs> so what does it matter if there's one more innocent human being atop the pile? That's the thing. I don't think she deviated that. I mean, yes, she did. But as I said, most of the interactions she had, we've either seen her being self-defense to a certain extent. Obviously, she, she forced herself in a situation where she had to self-defense. That, that's the thing is, I think that I think that distinction is key and is not one that is adequately made by the characters, which is fine. They don't have to make it. They can be characters that don't acknowledge that. Uh, but yeah, the the fact that she instigates these conflicts in the first place is what the Nora thing is the biggest agency she has on the type of death she inflicts on someone. Right. It's explicitly not self defense. It's and we can see the impact that has on her right after. She doesn't yeah. take it well. <laughs> she she does internalize that one a little bit differently than everybody else. I'm just saying from an out, from a, a different perspective. I don't think she's. <laughs> I don't think she's adequately blaming herself for other things. Of course, of be. course not. And I'm not trying to give her excuses. I'm just right. saying there are things she can justify, as silly as that sounds in her mind, and there are things that are just so heinous she can't find a cover for psychologically, like like the death pregnant... of an unborn child. Exactly, is is like the peak of this. She has a physiological response. Well, fortunately for her, she doesn't have to dwell on it alone very long. Uh, we, we hear some other people rush into the room, and uh, it's Jesse and Tommy. They've made it. They've survived. Uh, I guess they've caught, caught up with each other, and uh, they get Ellie out of there. She, she doesn't have to think about it too much long. It is interesting this cutscene closes on uh, a camera moved down to the ground. Oh, yeah. Watching the, the blood drip out, and then there's a map. There's a map left behind, uh, which... Might seem innocuous enough right now, but just something to keep in mind for later. Again, Ellie is not Joel. As much as she wants to be Joel, and as much as she acts tough, and I mean, she's tough, but there is still a part of that Ellie that we know <laughs> in there. It's just a very traumatized, beaten up part. And these things affect her, as we've seen with Nora. I mean, she got over it pretty quickly afterwards. She's willing to go the extra length, but these things affect her to her core. Like, they eat away at her. I mean, before we, we played through his journey in the first game, Joel is effectively kind of a sociopath. Oh, yeah. Uh, El Ellie's not. So, yeah, they're going to have a different reaction to and... the situations. And add to that the fact that Dina's pregnant. <laughs> right. The whole game is doing this uh, very George Lucasy. It rhymes. It's yeah. like poetry. Oh, no, <laughs> I hate for it. Everything, uh, <laughs> for everything on one side, there will be a exact counterpart on the others. I can't wait to get to the ending because I think they do some smart but terrible, terrible stuff regarding this. Uh, 
we're a long ways from there. Yeah. In case you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, we're still in Seattle uh, Day 3. Almost done with it. Yeah. Almost. So anyway, there are some cues. We see the, the type of reaction she has here. I think we only see it two or three other times in the game. Uh, there's this clutching for air, hand to her chest unable to breathe type of thing. And this can be just a generic thing, but given Naughty Dog's attention to detail, I do think it's very deliberate. So we have it here. We have it when she finds out uh, the truth about the Fireflies the hospital in the flashback, uh, when Joel tells her the truth. And I think at the end of it, like she has a PTSD episode. I feel like there's a recurring motive here. Yeah. I mean, it's very brief, though, because the, the game does need her to, to keep moving on. <laughs> so she gets a reaction, and then somebody else shows up to, to move her along, whether it's Dina or, in this cutscene, we get Jesse. And uh, Tommy finally shows up. I think this is our first time actually seeing Tommy since he's left Seattle. Or since he's left uh, Jackson, rather. And... Uh, they bail out. The first thing we see after this uh, scene is actually Dina and Ellie going next to Dina. And I think she just puts a lock of hair behind her ear or something like that. You mean you mean they get all the way back to the, the theater, no muss, no fuss? <laughs> this apparently, game makes such a, apparently. Yeah, this game, like, for places that people go to, apparently semi-frequently, it takes, you, you have a really hard time getting from point a to point b selectively 200 wlf dead later <laughs> <laughs> later yeah uh, you're definitely not going back the way that you came uh, but i guess you find a way I, i'm just kidding i don't really need another sequence but it, it is just a funny byproduct of how uh the game puts so much time in just getting from place to place that people then uh, retread that ground with no difficulty whatsoever or <laughs> no noteworthy events. He's like, God, it takes forever to go a mile. <laughs> it's a classic thing in storytelling. I've seen in this in books, films, and naughty dogs, games, and stuff naughty dogs stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they just took like the helicopter back or <laughs> right. Yeah. Tommy actually has a helicopter in addition to his in- infinite uh, stockpile of ammunition. Well, they're back at the theater. I think you mentioned that Dina was comforting Ellie. Ellie's comforting. I mean, Dina is kind of out of it still. Uh, she just seems asleep and sick. Ellie okay. sits next to her a little bit, leaves her to rest, and goes to talk with Jesse and Tommy about what's what's next. Yeah, we hear them in another room. I think it's clear at this point that we're, we're going back. You know, we're not going to absolutely finish this out. Abby's going to get to live. We have no more leads on her. Those have dried up. We've killed everybody else. We've taken out everybody else we came for things are dangerous here we've got a pregnant woman here that needs help uh we just need to go back like she's gonna have to get away with it which i think ellie is sort of processing and not very happy with but at the same time uh what can she do if there's no information there's no information you know tommy just says in all this mess he managed to find a, a necklace a gold necklace for maria is that, is that her name oh maria? yeah he's looking for like a uh <laughs> his wife obviously was not pleased when he's left so he's he's correctly anticipated this and uh along the way of his journey into seattle he's found a, a classic makeup gift of jewelry apology bribe yeah exactly Jesse and Ellie are teasing him about it not being really gold. They just want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Tommy goes in another room to grab the necklace, which gives a bit of a small moment between Ellie and Jesse. They didn't leave on the best of terms. Yeah. Jesse sort of recognized Ellie's going way too far for this. He's, she doesn't have the right priorities. Might be something messed up with her, but all's well that ends well, right? <laughs> ends well, being relative, but yeah. And then we hear a thump. My favorite sound. <laughs> yeah. And something happens, and Jesse and Ellie start running towards the entrance of the theater. Yeah, I think at this point, I sort of, well, even before the, the thump, um, as you call it, if you, you, you back away from that and you get here and you're like, well, there's no way they're really going to leave. And again, I told you, when I saw the backstage of the theater, I thought of a combat error. So when I heard this thump, it's like, here we go. Here is the combat. I was anticipating. Right. This is going to become that boss fight somehow. And it doesn't. I mean, it will, but not really. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, Jesse and Ellie run into the lobby of the theater, and uh, Jesse dies. He's shot in the face. Unceremoniously. He just immediately goes down. It's just like a reaction from Abby to someone rushing in the room. Yep. And uh, she's got Tommy at gunpoint. Uh, Abby's kind of, I guess, incredulous, indignant about everything. Like, I, I can't believe... This is the situation we're all in now. You know, you guys were spared. And yet, you came here and you killed everyone. Uh, Everybody that I cared about. Without exception. Uh, I mentioned before, Abby has some poignant lines. And this one, I've seen also quoted a lot around uh, by people. And I think it's it's one that sticks around a bit when she says that we let you live and you wasted it. Yeah, it's strong. It does... uh place Abby, I mean, it is Abby knowingly or unknowingly putting herself as a higher moral authority. It's not as though they informed... It's a bit unfair. Tommy or... Yeah, it's, it, it, they don't give any justification for their actions to Tommy or Ellie and then let them live. They don't explain why they let them live. They act as though, you know, they're the more moral authority and, uh, you know, Ellie and Tommy were, were spared, as though killing them would have been perfectly justified. Um for I don't know what reason, since they only came there for Joel and have no idea who either of those people are or what they did. Uh, so it's kind of a ridiculous quote, but yeah, it is the quote she gives. I mean, from from Abby's perspective, I understand the incredulity. Like, holy crap. She's, cause for, well, I guess I can't even go into this right now because we need to understand where she's been the past few days. But I think the news of literally all her friends dying is fairly new to her at this point. And it's like, Jesus Christ, y'all really came back hard, huh? It's like the the circle of violence. (laughs) And we don't really understand this right now, but we see there's a surprise as well in Abby's reaction when she sees Ellie because she was expecting Tommy when she came there, the theater. She, as we'll find out, she was expecting Tommy. The girl too. When Ellie says, look, I'm the one, I know why you killed Joel. Everything, it was because of me. What Joel did, did because of me. And I am the guilty one. Well, she misses the uh, she misses the personal element here. Despite uh, She thinks she knows what's happening, but she doesn't quite have the full picture. And Abby is, isn't exactly in the mood to correct her either. So I, I don't think she's quite aware of the strength of Abby's emotional relationship to that particular act of justice. Laura Bailey, I think, is the actress who plays Abby. There's this little 
just is so small, which is what makes it so good as well. Understanding of who Ellie is when she says it was because of me. She registers, as we've seen, these people know who Ellie is. They knew of Ellie as an abstract thing. There is a person, there is a girl out there that is immune. They knew of her existence, they didn't know it was her. So Nora finds out once she sees Ellie breeding spores, and Abby finds out once Ellie says all these things. And you see it on her face. And the first thing she says after she registers that is that line of, we let you live and you've wasted it. Which makes it a lot more powerful understanding that registry. I don't know, I think it's a very well-delivered moment. Well, it's cut short. Yes. <laughs> I think that quote is the last thing we hear. Abby points the gun towards Ellie and that's pretty much when the screen goes to cut to black and I'm like wait what and there's this very long pause I don't know if it's a is deliberate or it's just a loading thing but it's a long ass black when this cut to black happened I was like Oh God, I totally knew exactly. I, please don't be the thing I thought it was. Please don't be the thing I did. Oh no, it's exactly that. Well, we'll find out next episode what lies beyond the cut to black. Thank you for listening and see you next time. <laughs>